Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Previously on Mother Country Radicals. The Weather Underground meets Timothy Leary. I escaped uh, with the help of the Weatherman Underground. As they decide to reconnect to the wider youth counterculture, to fight a revolution without deadly violence. Suicide, revolutionary suicide, that wasn't on the agenda. Not only do we not want to kill anybody, we don't want to hurt anybody. But not everyone is a fan of their new direction. In 1971, most of the Panther 21 are still locked up in New York. And to some, it feels like the Weathermen are leaving them behind, selling out. Jamal Joseph is out on bail, but he's still facing decades in prison. I think the Panther 21, especially those members of the Panther 21 that were still in prison, felt forgotten. So the New York Panthers respond to the Weather Underground's new morning communique with a public letter of their own. We of the Panther 21 take this opportunity to greet you with the spirit of revolutionary love and solidarity. It's a comrade-to-comrade reminder. The weathermen should stay the militant course. We need allies. We have a powerful enemy who cannot be defeated without an allied effort. Anyone who has the same interests as we do, the destruction of this evil society is an ally. All others are foes. And they end their letter with a direct appeal. Do you recall the old Ask what you can do for your country, destroy it. Mentally, morally, psychologically, and physically, destroy it. And whatever you do, do it good. Your fellow guerrillas in the revolution, the Panther 21. So the weathermen decide to show the Panthers they haven't lost sight of the revolution. And they get to work planning their response. This is chapter six the belly of the beast. And this is a big story, so we've divided it into two parts. This is part one. In the spring of 1971, Afeni Shakur represents herself in the trial of the Panther 21. Five months pregnant and without any legal training, without even finishing high school, she gets an undercover detective to admit on the stand he misrepresented the activities of the New York Panthers to his NYPD bosses, and that he tried to encourage the Panthers to commit more violent acts. That undercover cop is Jamal Joseph's mentor, Yewa, real name Ralph White. The jury deliberates for less than two hours. In May 1971, the Panther 21 are acquitted of all charges, 
And a month later, Afeni gives birth to her son, Tupac. Jamal Joseph is his godfather. But Jamal and many other members of the 21 aren't around to see their big legal victory or the birth of a new panther cub. They've already disappeared. Earlier that winter, Black Panther leader Huey P. Newton had come east from California to give a talk at Yale, enlisting Jamal and some other New York Panthers as bodyguards. And this isn't unusual. After the murders of Malcolm X and Fred Hampton, national leaders often have local Panthers doing security at their public events. But this time, Jamal notices something is off with Huey. Huey Newton had become a very paranoid man. I mean, the, the, the paranoia was so high that he would step on stage and literally have a ring of people around him. Huey finishes his speech, and we usher him through a side door. And this was a very cold night, and there had been a snowstorm, and there was a lot of ice on the ground. When we get outside, there is a couple of students from the Yale newspaper, and there's a white kid that's got a camera. And when he gets the photo, a flash goes off, but at the same time, he slips. When you hear all of this noise, and guns come out from everywhere, half of the guns are pointed toward this poor kid, this kid with his long hair and his friend who had slipped, and the other half of the guns are pointed at each other. East Coast and West Coast. And there's a moment where we all look at each other. No one says a word. But we understand where we're at now. We get Yui in his car. And he drives off. And the rest of us go to our own cars without any words. Jamal and the other East Coasters are supposed to meet up with Huey again that night in New Haven. But one of Jamal's friends is getting a bad feeling. And I remember I was driving, and he said, Jamal, do you know your way to New York? And I said, I do. And he said, that's where we're going. Because if we go there, we're going to be killed. And that's the night I went underground. Tensions between East Coast and West Coast Panthers have been building for a long time political infighting, whispers of disloyalty. The Panthers don't know it yet, or at least they don't know specifics, but their internal conflicts have been stoked and encouraged for years by the FBI. It's part of official policy. Informants spreading rumors, agents writing forged letters, and fake news planted in the media to turn Panthers against one another. Angela Davis remembers. There was a a young man in one of our meetings uh, who wanted to lead the whole group out to the streets to kill cops. And we pointed out that this is exactly what an agent would do. So we knew that there were agents within the Black Panther Party. And uh, of course, that uh, sense of um, ubiquitous repression was eventually, I think, what uh, was responsible for the destruction of the Black Panther Party. Nobody can stand up to that kind of... uh, Uh, surveillance and and repression. The FBI's strategy works. In 1971, the Black Panther Party splits apart, East against West. And that's when the Panthers who were underground 
started identifying themselves as the Black Liberation Army. The Black Liberation Army, or BLA, is a catch-all name for multiple independent cells operating within the Black underground of the 1970s. Many BLA members are former Panthers, but their tactics, like their mindset, have evolved. Self-defense in itself is not revolutionary. It never has been. It's only one part of a dialectical whole, which is war. There can be no real self-defense unless you have uh, an effective offense. I advocate self-determination for my people and for all oppressed people inside the United States. These are not imaginary ghosts that we're fighting. We're fighting real oppression, real police violence. The Black Liberation Army could mainly be succinctly stated as, a, uh, as the opening of a new front in the overall struggle in the uh, United States. Opening a new front here at home. It's what people in the Weather Underground are saying, too. And in fact, the BLA and weathermen would wind up working in the same undergrounds, aiding and abetting and challenging each other while on the run. Members had influenced each other in the ideological debates of the 60s. Now they would support each other in the revolutionary struggles of the 70s. And some, the last desperate remnants of both organizations, would eventually go out together in a final explosion of violence in the 1980s. So this, the early to mid-70s, is when both undergrounds go to war. When black and white revolutionaries alike fulfill their promise to fight back against the United States government by any means necessary. And as in any war, increasing the violence raises the stakes. Not just for the revolutionaries themselves, but for the FBI and the police too. It creates an intensifying logic of escalation both sides more and more willing to cross legal and ethical lines in order to win. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The U.S. government is actually the first to escalate. For years, police and the FBI had been targeting peaceful black activist groups with illegal wiretaps, warrantless raids and arrests, beatings and intimidation. And when the Panthers try to arm themselves in self-defense, the government responds with outright assassinations. Jihad Abdul-Mumit is 16 years old when he joins the Panther chapter in New Jersey. It was very common for you to get a call from another Panther officer saying that so-and-so was killed today by the police. But all around us, there was Panthers getting arrested. The tactics used against white militant groups are different. Not as violent, certainly not as deadly, but still escalating in intensity. Frustrated that the FBI can't catch the Weather Underground fugitives, J. Edgar Hoover taps Associate Director Mark Felt, later known to the world as Deep Throat, to oversee his new mission to dismantle the group. At first, they try the usual tactics. Threats, bribes, money in exchange for cooperation. Bill Dyson is the lead agent on the Weather Underground case. These people weren't interested in money. We couldn't even get these people to cooperate at all. 
They were they weren't interested in that type of thing. They'd go to jail if need be, and if you can't talk to them, you can't convince them to to uh, become informants. So the FBI escalates again. Mark Felt authorizes black bag jobs, warrantless breaking and entering, illegal surveillance, even kidnapping and blackmail. And since they don't know how to find the fugitives themselves, the Bureau focuses its efforts on the above-ground friends and family members, the support network. My mom's sister, my Aunt Jennifer, is the unofficial spokeswoman for the Weather Underground at the time. She delivers the organization's statements after bombings in these informal, freewheeling press conferences. What is your I'm Jennifer. How do you feel about what your sister is advocating? I think it's right on. I think she's far out, and all weathermen are far out. Could you explain that? <laughs> they're forced to be outlaws by the way the society is run, and we think they're great. So even though she's above ground and hasn't been accused of any crime, the FBI figures Jennifer might be able to lead them to her fugitive older sister. Jennifer's living with her roommate, Judy, at the time. They would later find out their apartment and phones had been bugged. They're followed all the time in case they're planning to meet up with people underground. Whenever we had meetings, we would go through long trajectories to make sure that we were not being followed. But it was... um, It was an intense time. You know, the FBI rented an apartment next door to where Judy Clark and I lived, and in our Freedom of Information Act files, you know, they recorded us around the clock, everything we do, from, you know, from getting in a shower to cooking to making love with whoever either one of us was seeing. I mean, it's really such an invasion um, of, of privacy that they were in my most intimate moments and knew everything that Judy and I were doing. In fact, Jennifer says the FBI broke into her apartment repeatedly and that they took advantage of that access. When the head of the FBI in New York City retired, they gave him a going-away party, and the FBI gave him one pair of my underwear in a glass case as a trophy. And it was like... You know, I always wondered where that piece of underwear went. But they were in and out of our apartment. So anyway, it was just like so, it's just disgusting. That's all. She even hears years later about a plot by the FBI to kidnap her baby son, my cousin Emilcar, and hold him as blackmail to force Bernadine to turn herself in. And the FBI isn't just harassing Jennifer. Agents go after her and my mom's parents, too. My grandparents, Barney and Dorothy. You know, they would send people their age and say, oh, this must be so hard for you. My daughters are in college or my son just graduated from college. I know how you must feel. And my mother would bake chocolate chip cookies and give them coffee. And they would sit at the table. And they said every time we don't know anything because they didn't. But FBI agents soon give up playing good cop. They show up in the middle of the night. They pound on my grandfather's door. Don't tell your wife. Get in a car. We think we have your daughter's body here. You know, and to drive off to some place and see, uh, you know, a decomposing body and say, no, that's not her. How do you get over that? They hope he'll be so scared of his daughter getting hurt, he'll agree to help them catch her. It eventually gets back to my mom, what her parents are going through. 
I think they were, you know, afraid of uh, what the government and its evil forces could do. They were afraid for me. In case it's not obvious, what the FBI was doing here, targeting a suspect's relatives with unauthorized break-ins, warrantless surveillance, theft, let alone kidnapping and blackmail, is all illegal, unconstitutional. Our producer, Ariana Lee, asked Agent Dyson if he had any regrets about the Bureau's tactics. Uh, I don't agree with it. I thought it was horrible that 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 type of thing came to light. You thought it was horrible it came to light, but not that it had happened? I think it's horrible that it didn't succeed. If they were going to do that type of thing, why do it if it doesn't succeed? It doesn't look like they, well, they shouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. I'm just trying to sort of understand whether anyone thought like, oh, you know, maybe that's a bridge too far. You had to, I don't know how I can say it this way. Uh, What the weathermen were doing was presenting a threat. You got the impression that they had the capability and perhaps the desire to really do things that could cause disruption to our government. Like maybe they had the ability to assassinate the president. Maybe they could blow up Congress and kill congressmen, important congressmen. And that presented a real situation for a lot of people. Can we let this happen? Because you could literally alter history if you could kill the president. And there were some people who felt we, anything goes. We got to do this. We got to protect our country. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. If this is a war, in other words, the ends justify the means. The FBI believes it's worth breaking the law, doing whatever they have to in order to win. And the activists in the revolutionary undergrounds, both black and white, are starting to think exactly the same thing. In 1970, members of the Black Liberation Army are still living in and around New York City. They haven't gone far geographically. But like the weathermen, they've suddenly entered a parallel universe. A universe of safe houses and payphones, code words and fake IDs. And also like the weathermen, they're aided in their descent by a network of above-ground supporters. People who aren't militants or fugitives themselves, but offer help with supplies and logistics. People like the man I'm named after, Zaid Shakur. And Zaid was there to give people support. This idea of being able to move from one city to another, one apartment to another, you know, for someone to have some fake ID. In the early 1970s, Zaid is the New York Panther Minister of Information and one of the most beloved people in the New York chapter. Asada Shakur says in her autobiography that Zaid is a feminist, the first man to help cook dinner or roll up his sleeves and wash the dishes, that during the Panther 21 trial, he works relentlessly around the clock to raise bail to keep programs running, to keep people organized. Zaid is also, apparently, the best-dressed panther in New York. 
because he was a tailor and a designer. And wearing Afrocentric stuff in New York was the shit in those days. And Zayd would make dashikis and pants and these great coats. A great thing about doing your work really well with Zayd and hang out with Zayd was like, Zayd, why don't you make me a dashiki, man? And Zayd would be like, how much money you got? And I was like, $5. And he was like, these dashikis are $20. And I'd be like, but I don't have it. He was like, keep working for the people and let's see what we can do. When people start to go underground, Zayd is put in charge of making disguises. He's forced to tone down the style because the BLA's new look has to be as non-pantherish as you could. You know what I mean? To cut your hair and brush it to the side and uh, and have on a corny sweater and some, you know, corny shoes so that you could just look like, you know, a college student or somebody coming home from work. And this is how it works in the underground. People use their talents in unexpected ways. Fashion designers make corny disguises. Law students figure out how to break the law. Science majors build bombs. The BLA has an underground support network, too. And the weathermen are part of it. When Black people went underground, it was that white underground that would help them find hiding places, money, food, help them get out the country, etc. That became our modern underground railroad, to be, like, real clear. The Panthers had stepped up to hide Timothy Leary in Algeria. Now, in the fall of 1970, the weathermen have already been fugitives for six months. And they offer to share what they know with their black comrades, helping with fake IDs, safe houses, and medical care. I don't go into too much detail about times and place, but I'll just say that, that I remember meeting Bernadine and the support for exactly what I'm talking about was like real support. I remember coming away going like, that's a real sister right there. <laughs> My mom's sister, Jennifer, had deep ties to both groups, connecting the black and white undergrounds, being on call. People were trying to give whatever help we could. There was a party at a friend's house in Brooklyn. I remember going and we were dancing and dancing, and the man I was seeing at the time, who was a doctor, Got a call, nodded at me. We went outside because we never talked inside apartments and someone had been injured in the Black Liberation Army and he needed to go off and take care of a gunshot wound. So we hugged and he went off. And then he came back four hours later um, and the person was okay. He was able to deal with the wounds. And then I just remember we tried to dance again. So this is how the black and white undergrounds start to build a relationship, to trust each other with small acts of solidarity while on the run. We called each other comrades, and we called each other brothers and sisters. And that was people meeting, you know, in apartments and in dark corners and in places in the woods, talking about how do we fight, how do we help people who are already on the run, and how do we advance the struggle. For the BLA, advancing the struggle means gathering supplies, stockpiling weapons, preparing for a battle they know is coming. We were training folks for what we thought was an escalation of everything that was going to lead to some armed struggle. And so um, a lot of the work was getting guns donated, buying guns, putting safe houses together and escape routes together. Pretty soon, they start carrying out actions in their own neighborhoods, 
first targeting the drug dealers and pimps who'd been preying on their communities for years. Former Panther and BLA member Jihad Abdelmoumet remembers why. You know, we had a saying back in the Panther Party that two hurricanes can't blow at the same time. You cannot sell your heroin and dope on the corner where there's a Black Panther Party office. You just can't. It's just it's a contradiction there. Death to the pigs and death to the pusher. Get the heck out of here with that dope. And we weren't playing with that. Jamal Joseph is part of a crew taking on dealers in Harlem and the Bronx. We managed to shut down about five to seven drug dens, you know, where we went in, you know, at gunpoint and disarmed the drug dealers and destroyed the drugs and took the money. You come in with a couple of bags, one to scoop the drugs, one to scoop the money. Drugs got flushed down the toilet. You know, one or two occasions where we had a chance to kind of come out and says that, you know, we're armed combatants from the Black Liberation Army. We declare this liberated territory. Anyone who is dealing drugs is committing genocide on our people. They will answer to the justice of the people. It would be so funny because a crowd would gather fairly quickly. The grandmothers would be like, yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus. There'd be a couple of... A couple of junkies in the crowd seeing the drug go down to Susan, they would go like, God damn, no! (laughs) But taking down dealers isn't enough. You need to make real money to fund the revolution. This movement is not going to go down by having bake sales or fundraising. And nobody at that time was writing any grants as such. (laughs) Jihad is a teenager when he becomes a BLA soldier, just like Jamal Joseph. He's part of a small cell in Rochester, New York, focusing on expropriations. As opposed to bank robbery. The expropriation is more a term that relates to uh, the revolutionary aspects of what you're doing. You're doing this for a particular reason, not for jewelry and sneakers or some personal aggrandizement. You're doing this as it connects to a movement. Jihad and his crew pull off a couple bank robberies without getting caught or hurting anyone. Soon it becomes pretty routine. Two of us go position ourselves and the other two come in, you know, 20 seconds later, we jump over the counter and take the money from the different drawers. And then all four of us leave, we get out, get into a car. One time they're leaving the bank and they're listening in on a CB radio to random truckers out on the highway, calling out warnings to each other about cops on the road. Breaker, breaker, one nine. We have a convoy of smoky bears coming up on the (laughs) such and such a mile marker. Smoky bears, trucker slang for police cars. The cops are getting closer. And then a trucker said, uh, breaker, breaker, one nine. By golly, we have a bear in the air. He even made it sound poetic. And here comes a helicopter coming down kind of low. And then the chase was on. It went through Franklin County and into the next county. Uh, shooting up the highway there. Eventually, it was nothing but police. So, you know, they kicked our ass, but sure, at least mine. Jihad would serve 23 years in Lewisburg and Leavenworth federal penitentiaries for bank robberies and for trying to help other comrades escape from prison. Somebody may look at it now that thinks that they have some more better paramilitary approach to things. But the thing about it, we had the balls and the audacity to do it. And the reason that we were doing it is for our own liberation. So that's why, that's the only reason why that I would risk my life as a teenager. I could have been anything. I could have, I could have probably went to college and 
and uh, end up being some Uncle Tom congressman or something. <laughs> Drug dealers, pimps, and banks aren't the BLA's only targets. The Black Underground is also gearing up for a bigger, more serious fight with a group they believe poses an even more deadly threat to their communities. The BLA is going to war with the police. Next time on Mother Country Radicals. I guess I would say it this way, that those who know don't tell and those who tell don't know. So I know some things that I can't tell you. The Weather Underground launches a new wave of bombings in solidarity with the North Vietnamese and the Black Freedom Movement. That was a powerful idea that there were these white people who really wanted to support uh, the, the Black Liberation Movement. There were three early morning bomb blasts. About 20 offices, all of them empty at the time, were damaged. The men's room a shambles, bombing demolished, bricks and plaster ripped from walls. The Associated Press got a phone call from a man saying he was with the Weather Underground. And the Black Liberation Army fights its own battle against the New York City police. Last week in New York City, for no apparent reason, a gang of four men opened fire on two young police officers, killing them both. The war they've all been preparing for, for years, is finally here. When you were in the Panthers above ground, you would wake up in the morning thinking this might be the day that you got arrested or killed. In the BLA, you woke up thinking, this is the day. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Mother Country Radicals is an original podcast from Odyssey and Crooked Media. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, your host, writer, and executive producer. From Crooked Media, executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta, with special thanks to Katie Long. From Dustlight, executive producer is Misha Youssef. Arwen Nix is our executive editor. Ariana Garib-Lee is our senior producer. Stephanie Cohn is the producer. Ty Jones is our historical consultant. All three also helped with writing on the series. This episode was sound designed by Ariana Garib-Lee. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Andy Clausen is the composer. For Odyssey, Tim Clark is head of audio content. Lindsey Grant is head of platform marketing. And Brian Swarth leads podcast marketing. Special thanks to Melissa Providence, Lizzie Roberti Denahan, Andy Slater, and Danny Kutrick. Thanks to our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, Rachel Garcia 
Apprentice Shamari Kirkwood, and Mark Wilkening, and the team at Chicago Recording Company. Mother Country Radicals is an Odyssey original podcast. 